Ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have victims. Throughout history, whenever great injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end those injustices. You have organizations out there like the Center for Bioethical Reform. The Center for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Organizations like the Center for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then all kinds of people can join the pro-life movement to save these babies. I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto. I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion. Today we were doing choice chain in downtown Regina. By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life. He then walked away 100% pro-life. Completely pro-life. We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to our defense. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. My name is Peter. I am the host of the show, and with me again is Cameron, my dear and faithful co-host. Hello, sir. How are you today? I am doing very well. I am still riding the high of having spoken with one of my mentors and heroes, Scott Klusendorf, and I'm fired up because today, day of recording, is our first day back to doing public activism in the Calgary office. We're going to be doing a whole bunch of COVID protocols, but we are going to be showing the truth of what abortion does to preborn children, to the people of Calgary, getting them thinking about this important issue. I'm excited to be back. It's been a long time since December and our last activism. That's good. And on the on the the Scott episode, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that yet, go check it out. It's the episode 26 with Scott Klusendorf. Super good conversation we had with him. So go go check it out. If you're new to the podcast, we are two guys who are passionate about ending the killing of preborn children in Canada, and this podcast is dedicated to giving you the tools you need to change minds and save lives from abortion. So do uh, continue listening to this episode, but also check out some of the other ones that we have where we share some of the uh, apologetic tools and methods and questions that we use on the streets, as Cam mentioned, uh, to, to change minds, to see people turn from supporting abortion to being against it. Before we get into the conversation today, I just want to to highlight one thing. We are on Patreon. We have some huge projects happening here, some that we started already, which includes Humans of the Pro-Life Movement and a recording of The Pulse, our first one, which is going to be in a very, probably a week and a half or so, um, where we share pro-life news from around the world. And we have some other projects that we're, we've been planning and thinking about as well. Um, and all of that happens because you financially partner with us. We thank you for those who have partnered already. We encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash guys. There's some pretty cool merch there as well that you can get uh, on different tiers that you support us at. So uh, do check it out, patreon.com slash guys. All right. The topic for today um, is an argument that we've all heard, or many of us heard if we've been in the, in the pro-life movement for any length of time. Um, and we've heard this, whether you're on social media, wherever it might be, something along the lines of, the baby does not have a right to use my body, or does not have a right to use my body without my consent, or um, just, you know, I shouldn't uh, have to support a violinist. Um, and because I don't have to support a violinist, 
I don't have to support my own baby. And you might be wondering, what even was that last analogy? Well, here it is. Um, all of these are variations of what has been dubbed the violinist argument. The violinist argument was an argument created by Professor Judith Jarvis Thompson. She was an MIT philosophy professor who wrote a lot of things, studied a lot of philosophy, and wrote on a lot of philosophy. But one of her most interesting essays was titled A Defense of Abortion, in which she essentially looks pro-lifers in the eye. She states that the fetus is a human, the fetus is a person, the fetus has the right to life, but we should be, we could, we should be allowed to kill that pre-born child anyway. Um, and she uses a very interesting thought experiment and a challenging thought experiment at that um, to justify the killing of preborn children. She died last November of 2020 at the age of 91. So our condolences to her family. But I mentioned that because one of the tragic things is that her legacy and, and her key moral key contribution to moral philosophy was this argument was this justification of the destruction of millions of preborn children. And that is a very tragic thing for sure. I mean, her argument has been used countless times to justify abortion. And so let's let's get into this argument. Cam, could you could could you walk us through the violinist analogy? Yeah, 100 percent. So to, to summarize this thorough paper that, that Dr. Thompson puts forward, what she what she articulates is that you wake up one morning and you find yourself no longer at bed in your own home, but rather back to back in bed in the hospital with an unconscious violinist hooked up to your kidneys. And this famous violinist is unconscious and, and you realize you've been told by the doctors that this famous violinist had kidney failure and that they searched through all of the different um, medical records and they found that you were the only person who had the correct blood type to be able to help. Therefore, this crazy society of music lovers kidnapped you in the night, drugged you, brought you into the hospital and hooked your kidneys up to the kidneys of this famous violinist so that your kidneys would not only um, take on all the toxins and poisons in your own blood, but also operate basically as a kidney, kidney dialysis machine for the sake of this violinist as well. The director of the hospital tells you, you know what? We're really sorry. We, we had no hand in this. The Society for Music Lovers are being punished for these actions. And yet the fact remains you are now hooked up to this um, violinist. And if you unplug yourself from him, then he'll die and you will kill him. But never mind. It's only for nine months. By, the, um, by then he will recover from his ailment. He can go safely on from there and you can be unplugged. And, and Dr. Thompson puts forward this argument that, sure, it would be really nice for you to stay hooked up to him. Obviously, that'd be a great kindness, but is it morally incumbent on you to um, allow this, <laughs> this travesty to unfold? Are you morally obligated to remain attached to the violinist? And are you culpable as a murderer? if you were to detach yourself from the violinist. And, and she does that. I, I hope that that explanation is clear, that, that she's making this analogy and suggesting, like you mentioned earlier, Peter, that the preborn child is human. They are a person. They are deserving of human rights, just like this violinist. And yet they have been hooked up to you in, 
in a, a manner that you were not anticipating, that you were not um, prepared for, not desiring, and now you are beholden to be stuck in a hospital bed with them for the next nine months. That, that's kind of the gist of the argument. I think it's fair to say we'll post the entire um, article in the show notes if you want to read further, but I think that adequately summarizes what she's getting at. Yeah, that's right. And, and really, really simply, like you mentioned, although the preborn child is a person, although they are human, although they have the right to life, like uh, this violinist, they do not have the right to use another person's body to sustain their own life if that person wishes to withhold that support. And so according to Thompson, using another person's body is one that be go goes beyond any moral obligation. And so in this case as well, and when it comes to the topic of pregnancy and abortion, the mother is morally justified in removing her preborn offspring, even if that removal results in the death of her offspring. And uh, and and that's that. I mean, I mean, I think Cam, when we look at this argument, we hear it for the first time. We it has to challenge us because usually or often when we hear pro-abortion arguments. Um, there's a certain level of straw manning that happens. They they believe this is our position when it's not our position, um, or they they don't take you know the real center ground of our position, which is the humanity of the preborn. They ignore that altogether and and discuss some other circumstances. But what Thompson is doing here is she is saying, okay, I I am going to take your argument face value. Your most solid point, as you say, pro-lifer, is that. Um, the, the question of abortion, whether it should be allowed or whether it should not be allowed, hinges on whether the preborn is human, a living human member of the human family. So she she grants that they're human and yet comes to the, that conclusion that, you know what, even though they're human, we should be allowed to kill them anyway. And so as we have a conversation about this, Cam, I, I think it's wise to frame this conversation in two distinct parts. Um, let's look at some of the problems that we see with this argument. And then let's look at how we can interact with people in conversation when they bring this argument up um, to justify abortion. So let's start with some of the problems that we see with this argument. What what are some of the, the issues you have with this sort of reasoning and this analogy? Yeah, I think it's important for us to be analytical about this kind of analogy, this metaphor, and really break it down to see where the water seeps through the cracks. Is this... Um, airtight or are there cracks? And I think there are a number of cracks in this. And I think that it's important to do that. I The the science, <laughs> science background in my mind kicks in that, that if you try to assert a, um, a conclusion from an experiment that you did earlier, but you have tinkered with the experiment in, in areas here and there, sure, some of those tinkerings aren't actually going to be relevant. And yet some of them may produce drastically different results and make the conclusion no longer um, appropriate. And so if we look at this and we say, okay, well, where, where do we go awry? What are the, the parallels that have been broken? Because that's what we're trying to do with a good analogy. We're trying to have parallel um, circumstances on all of the meaningful factors. We're not talking about the name of the violinist and the name of the child. That, that's not a meaningful um, part of, of the analogy. But the first one that I think that we have to bear in mind, though we have to be very careful in how we articulate this, if we do articulate this, it is worth understanding, first of all, in some ways, the, the purpose and function of a mother's uterus versus the purpose and function of her kidney. When you consider what is the kind of 
Aristotelian um, function? What what is the the purpose of one versus the purpose of the other? As much as we we cannot we cannot emphasize enough the fact that both the uterus and the kidney belong to the mother. We're not suggesting that the uterus belongs to the child, but for whose well-being does the uterus exist? It, it exists for the well-being, for the um, profitable, successful nurturing of a preborn child, whereas the kidney functions exclusively for the well-being of the mother, uh, for, for the woman, for the man, whomever, whoever's body uh, we're talking about. And so I think that's something important to keep at at the very least in the back of our minds. And as we'll get into later in in this episode, why we need to be careful if we're gonna kind of talk about this explicitly, where where we need to be careful to make sure that we're not suggesting that uh, women's bodies are just baby factories. That's not at all the point that we want to convey. We're not going to say, oh, well, the uterus isn't even yours. You have to let whoever into the uterus uh, <laughs> that, that wants in there. That's absolutely not what we're saying. Woman has to have complete um, control over who she has sexual intimacy with, that, that whole sort of thing. So that's not where I'm getting at. An even bigger point than that, though, Peter, is the cause of death. Dr. Thompson is asserting that it's your fault in both circumstances. If either human dies, either the preborn child in, in the mother's uh, womb or this, this violinist, if either of these people die, it is your fault. And I think that that is a very, very subtle, but very, very important um, misunderstanding, miscalculation, misrepresentation at the end of the day. Because if we talk about the, the biological forces that are bringing about the death of each human being, when we consider the violinist, what, what is the biological force that brings about their death? It is an internal force. It is their own, the corruption of their own body, the fact that their own kidneys have unnaturally failed, that this is a corruption of nature that is bringing about their um, their death, and that that is in some ways the biological, not the moral fault. It's not that that the violinist is necessarily morally culpable for their own death, um, though they obviously may be. Um, I'm, I'm saying biologically, their own body is culpable for their death, and not you, because the reason they're dying is because of something unnatural happening to to their body within their body, and that's radically, radically different than what's happening to the preborn child. The preborn child is existing exactly as they ought to be, exactly where they ought to be. And an external force, the, the abortion provider, the mother through her decision, um, whoever it is that's performing the abortion, an external force is corrupting a natural process and the natural welfare of, um, of that being. And so there's a radical and fundamental difference between what brings about the death of those two patients. And that is what the, where the entire argument breaks down. There are other factors that we're going to get into that we can appeal to the humanity and sensibilities of um, the, the people that we're talking to. But at the end of the day, that is why this analogy doesn't work because of the cause of death. Again, to summarize, the cause of death for the violinist is something intrinsically corrupted, in, uh, internally corrupted within themselves. It's um, their body's own fault, as it were, that they're dying. Whereas for the preborn child, it is 
not the, the preborn child's fault that they're dying. They are exactly what they should be, exactly where they should be. Does that make sense, Peter? It does. Yeah, no, that's that's really clear. Um, the, the, the violinist is dying because of their pre-existing medical condition. The child is dying because an outside force uh, like an abortionist interrupts their their life where they are where they're supposed to be and it tears them apart and um, we're, we're going to be talking about this a little bit later as well but I I think one thing that's worth noting is that abortion is not merely the withholding of treatment if, if abortion was analogous to um, you know, not being connected to this violinist it would simply be we're going to withhold the the treatment and the support that you need and I I think of something that Francis Beckwith who uh, has written a lot on the on the topic of abortion, I think of one of the things that he says, and it's something l- along the lines of calling abortion merely the withholding of support is kind of like suffocating someone with a pillow and calling it the withdrawing of oxygen. Because there's more than just the withdrawing of oxygen. There's a, there, there are specific actions taken um, to ensure that the oxygen, you know, that that person can't, uh, take in oxygen. And so there's a lot more going on and, and we'll talk about that as well um, a little bit later. But what is going on is the intentional, you know, poisoning or, or, or suctioning out or, or dismembering of a young human being. So, yeah, that's that's a really good point, Cam. And and so one of the things you mentioned is that this is, you know, the purpose and the uh, function of the, the uterus and, and kidney and the cause of death here. These are kind of the strongest cases that we can make against the the violinist analogy when we're looking at them in terms of the parallels the the morally relevant parallels in this analogy this is where the argument breaks down but you mentioned that there are a few others that we can appeal to a few other arguments that we can use when we're in conversations that um have a have a bit of a have some weight as well so could you share some of those with us mm-hmm. the the next one that i think that that does actually bear a significant amount of weight, but may not be resonating so much with society because of how um, how thorough and complete the attack on the family has been since the sexual revolution, arguably since long before that, is the responsibility of parents towards their children. This idea that you are no more responsible towards your biological offspring than you are towards a complete stranger Maybe you don't even like classical music. Um, if, if you don't, then you're wrong. But if, if you don't like classical music or, or, or <laughs> I mean, I, I won't pick a name out of the hat, but if, if you're not into like screamo music or something, um, I'm not going to pick any screamo artist largely because I don't know any. Um, but if you don't like the person or if you have no positive or negative feelings towards the person, that that is radically different than your your instinctive, your your natural responsibility towards your child, that there is absolutely a morally relevant relationship that exists between a mother and her biological children, obviously not not excluding adoptive children um, as well, that that your adoptive children absolutely have moral demands on your time. And going even beyond this, and, and I'm sure this is a, a topic for another episode, I think that we do have moral demands on us for complete strangers as well. But I think that's a different ball of wax um, that maybe we get into another time. At the end of the day, we absolutely have responsibility towards our biological offspring. And yet the, the natural challenge, Peter, I'm sure that you've heard this before when you bring up the nature of this relationship is, okay, but consent to sex is not consent to pregnancy. 
and and that is a very very dangerous um dangerous line of of conversation to go down because it's absolutely wrong right <laughs> yeah and that's not something we use anywhere i mean um i think we would all agree that we are responsible for the the outcome of our axes uh, of our actions for example if you're a big baseball guy let's say you go to downtown calgary and you decide to play some baseball and you knock a ball into someone's window you were like well i consented to hitting the baseball but i didn't consent for that window to be broken uh therefore i shouldn't be held responsible for that window being broken and i think no one would agree with you <laughs> i don't think your case would fly very far i mean you consented to hitting that baseball in the middle of downtown calgary and there were some negative effects of that baseball going through a window and therefore you ought to pay for that or there should be reparations made for that. Exactly. And this is something, again, that we need to build up in society, this, this notion of um, cause and effect, because the media, the, the establishment, there's so many forces that have been pushing this notion of sex without consequences that you should be able to engage in whatever sexual activity you want with absolutely no consequences. And so when I, I mean, I, I, I'll never forget a guy that I was talking to down in Florida at one of our abortion awareness um, projects. And, and we were talking about this and I saw it click in his mind of, oh my goodness, there are dominoes. If, if abortion is not appropriate, then I have to absolutely change my life. I, I can't be engaging in, in random casual hookups. I can't be engaging in, um, <laughs> in sexual encounters that I absolutely can't handle uh, a child with. And I, I'll never forget a, a line that a good friend of mine, Victor here in Calgary, he was talking to his son and, and explaining like, if you're not ready to be a father of a child, then you have no business getting into somebody's bedroom or getting into somebody's pants. That is absolutely off the table. Period. If you're not in a position to father a child, if you're not in a position to mother a child, then you should not be putting yourself in the circumstances which may very well naturally lead to that outcome. Yeah, I, I think of an analogy that, uh, not an analogy, a story that our colleague Jonathan Van Maren shared before where he was having a conversation with someone and the guy said, my girlfriend got pregnant and I don't even know what happened. And Jonathan responded by saying, I wasn't even there and I could tell you what happened. Um, and, and that just highlights the point that we've been taught, um, well, I, I shouldn't say we've been taught, I haven't been taught this, but many in our culture have been taught that they, their reproductive organs are in fact not reproductive organs, but recreational organs. And, and one of the things that we need to remember is that, no, they are in fact reproductive organs and reproductive organs reproduce. They do precisely what they have been created to do. And so there are, there are, there are, you know, Actions, there, there are consequences. Uh, consequences might be the, the wrong word because children are a real blessing. Um, but there are, for lack of better word, consequences to having sex. And, and one of the things that most definitely can happen is that your reproductive organs do precisely what they're supposed to do. No, and, and I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that. First of all, I, I work really hard with the new volunteers here in Calgary and whoever I'm giving apologetics workshops to, to, to talk about it as an outcome of pregnancy and not as a consequence of pregnancy. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the outcome kind of implies a a neutral, even though it obviously, like you said, should be an overwhelmingly positive outcome from um, from intimacy um, to, to just give it a, a morally neutral or, or that kind of thing. Obviously, we also have to talk here, at least in, in some ways, about sexual assault, right? Because there obviously are people who become pregnant 
who had no desire, no intention to become pregnant, and they did everything within their power to not become pregnant, right? And so we, we absolutely have to have a heart for that. We absolutely have to acknowledge that some of the people who might be even using this argument are saying, but in the case of sexual assault, um, I haven't um, volunteered my body. I haven't offered my body in any kind of, I absolutely want a child or I know this could be a potential outcome. I, I did everything I could to not become pregnant. What about those cases? And, and there's a beautiful, beautiful episode. I feel like it's number 14 or 15 that we talked to Aura Navas um, about shining a light into the darkness of sexual assault. And, and she has a beautiful, beautiful testimony. I strongly encourage you to check out that episode. And just by way of um, very, very severe sum, summary, um, the, trotting out the toddler, acknowledging the absolute hardship of, of that encounter, the fact that regardless of whether that woman becomes pregnant or not, she's absolutely going to need so much support from society. And that guilty perpetrator of that crime is going to need the, the most severe punishment possible. Um, but, but check out that episode to learn more about how to respond with compassion and with courage to circumstances of sexual assault. Just think it's important for us to mention that here and there, um, here and now, because while, yeah, the, the vast majority of cases that we might be talking about may not involve that, um, very intentional, not wanting to become pregnant. Um, it, it, we absolutely have to keep at the front of our minds, um, the fact that, that, those cases happen far more frequently than anybody wants to admit. Yeah, no, that's that's 100% right and, and extremely important to remember for conversations. The episode is episode 13 titled Sharing Light in the Darkness of Sexual Assault. So go check that out. And I, I think, Cam, this is a good segue into how we can respond to this argument in conversations. And and one of the things that's worth noting, and this is something I learned from you, um, so so if I miss something, do feel free to share, um, is that there's often a difference between the the logical problems of an argument and how we interact with um, that argument when we're in conversation with someone else. And this is because people don't act and think 100% philosophically and intellectually when you're in conversation with them. People are making decisions emotionally as well. And so our apologetic method in many ways, yes, it has to be logically sound. Yes, it has to be, um, you know, ha have good foundations, but it also has to to grasp the whole person uh, because people are also making decisions emotionally. And so while there certainly will be overlap with the problems with the argument and, and bringing them up in conversation, um, there's a little bit more as well. It's not like, you know, the, the, the facts alone are going to change someone's mind. And so Cam, when someone brings up this argument, and, and we've heard it many times when we're on the streets, what are they getting at? Honestly, what I think so many people are getting at is the fear of losing control. I, I think each and every one of us, and I think that that's demonstrated so um, actively and, and so perfectly with this, this COVID-19 global pandemic, right? That, that we see the frustration boiling with so many people because we like to be in control. And how that applies to this argument is this idea of I shouldn't have to compromise my control or change my life because of those around me. I want to be in control of where I'm going. I am the captain of my ship. I am um, the admirable uh, the admiral of my soul kind of thing. And nobody else should be able to put demands on me or force me to change course um, unless I want to. 
sure, if I want to change my own course to be kind towards somebody else, and that's my own prerogative, nobody else can compel me to do that. Simply put, you could think I'm not my brother's keeper, or I simply don't owe you anything. You have no claim on my um, autonomy. You have no claim on causing me to change the, the direction, the choices, the narrative that I am trying to write in my own life. And I, I hope that that's something that we can appreciate. I hope that many of us are striving to um, think in a collective sense, to think as, as good Christians um, or, or decent human beings, regardless of whether you're Christian or not, the fact that um, do unto others as you would want them to do unto our, ourselves, that, that a, a very good and holy, perfect man uh, said this a long time ago, and, and it rings true right now, right? That... We absolutely, I mean, the, the world cannot thrive in a eye for an eye mentality, right? I mean, the, the classic Gandhi line of an eye for an eye leaves the world blind sort of thing. Um, sure, the world might survive in a purely legalistic society in which philosophy and logic are the only things that are drawn upon. And yet the world cannot thrive. We are called and invited to something so much more than that. And, and that's a really long ramble into why it's so valuable to be able to engage the whole person. Emotions are not something that we should say, oh my goodness, if only people that that spoke to us at Choice Chain would, would leave their, their emotions at the door and only engage intellectually. No, I think that it's beautiful that we have this opportunity to appeal to the humanity, appeal to the sensibilities of the people around us. And so how do we do that? Where Where can we appeal to this humanity and sensibility, like I said, and um, yeah, asking the question, do we have a responsibility to those around us? Are, are we, we expected, are, are we invited to go above the bare minimum of not savagely ripping each other apart? Do we have some kind of an invitation, some kind of a, an obligation, a moral obligation towards doing good to the people around us? And if we apply this, if, if we start ap applying these kind of more holistic arguments or, or holistic ideas, I don't even want to call them arguments necessarily, towards the violinist analogy, the first thing that I would do if somebody presents the violinist analogy, and by way of, of um, a quick aside, I love when people don't understand or don't remember the, the full violinist analogy, and they say, well, what if you were hooked up to a pianist or a cellist? Now, I have no idea what I would do if my liver was hooked up to a pianist, but I know exactly what I would do if I was hooked up <laughs> by my kidneys to a violinist, building some kind of um, humor and rapport. Yes, this is a heavy topic, but people hunger and thirst for a genuine human interaction, in my opinion. Um, the first thing that I want to do is I want to appeal to their sensibilities on that relationship, the relational dynamic between a mother and her child. Um, what, what kind of responsibilities do we have towards our children rather than towards strangers? Obviously, I, I want to talk to them at some point about the responsibilities we have towards strangers when it comes to getting active in the pro-life movement. Peter, you and I don't know pregnant, the pregnant mothers who need to hear this message from a hole in the wall. And yet we need to do good towards strangers as well. But we absolutely should appeal to their sensibilities towards the, the responsibility, the, the nature of that relationship between mother and child, in spite of the brokenness of our culture, in spite of the attack against the family that has been ongoing 
I mean, arguably since Eden, obviously, but more so now than ever, I think, with the sexual revolution, appealing to the sensibilities of of that relationship with the child. And, and isn't our world better if parents look after their children? We, we can all think of, of, of negligence. We can all think of people in our spheres of influence, I'm sure, that, that we think at times are negligent towards their children. We think of the mother in the grocery store whose child is clearly losing their mind. And we say, wouldn't it, like, it would be better if that mother just paused and talked to her child instead of rushing to the grocery store. Please never say that to to the mother. Um, speaking from firsthand experience, sometimes children are just losing it, and you're probably not going to help anything by um, telling that mother, "Hey, why don't you do something for your child?" Um, but the, the principle applies that um, we we expect parents to not neglect their children, and we we've seen horror stories in the news of people who have neglected their children to the extent of abandoning them at home, and not in a cute home alone vibe sort of thing, but in a very, very terrible, um, I can't handle, or I don't want to handle looking after this child anymore. Therefore I'm going to abandon them on a street corner in a dumpster or in my house. I'm going to go on vacation. Like we're horrified when we see somebody breaking that natural relationship between a mother and a child. And that's something that we can absolutely, um, rely upon. And as we've talked about in so many episodes, we try not the toddler. Right. With that principle, we, we asked, we appealed to their sensibility and say, what about a mother who has a one-year-old child who is extreme? Obviously, that one-year-old child, I, I have a, a child who's slightly older than one-year-old and is completely dependent on my wife and I. And would we ever say that that mother could um, refuse to or, or neglect her child because she simply doesn't want to and she should be in control of her life? No, we wouldn't say that. So I, I wonder, Cam, on that note, if Thompson would, would respond by saying something along, along the lines of, okay, so after birth, there's no longer this direct attachment or this direct relationship where you're literally attached to the mother's own body. So the child, in a sense, could be cared for another way, um, which is different than the, the, the real attachment prior to, prior to birth. Mm. How, how, you know, I mean, how would we, how would we navigate through that? Yeah. So, so first thing I do before I get into the logic of it, I would appeal to the sensibilities of helping people understand that um, in, in many ways, I'm, I'm not going to say the pregnancy is easy. Please don't stone me for that. Anyone who's been pregnant or, or witnessed a, a spouse um, who has gone through pregnancy, pregnancy is not easy. Um, but in a lot of ways, it is a very different kind of responsibility than looking after a born child. And, and to suggest that your um, the dependency somehow lessons when that child is born, I, I think is being very, very naive. But what I would respond is simply by trotting out the toddler again. Okay, imagine that a mother of a born child decides that she no longer wants to be the primary caregiver of that child. And she calls um, social services or adoptive services or whatever the, the institution is in, in your jurisdiction. And they say, you know what, uh, Mrs. Smith, we'll, we'll be there as quick as we can, but we have a huge backlog. You're in a very, very remote part of the country. It's probably going to take us a couple of weeks to get there. If that mother says, okay, we'll take as much time as you want, but I'm not going to lift a finger for that child. And so, and if that child perishes before you get here, it's your fault. No, you are absolutely responsible for the well-being of your biological offspring until somebody else can successfully assume responsibility. 
right? It'd be nonsense for for somebody to say. I mean, I I often go to the the extreme and say, if you're walking your child across a busy busy street and you decide halfway through the street that you no longer want to care for that child, you place a call to adoptive services and you leave your child in the middle of the road and suggest that somehow adoptive services is responsible if your child gets hit by a car and dies. No, you are responsible for the well-being of your offspring, of your children, of your dependents, until somebody else can successfully assume responsibility. That's that's the route that I would go. Yeah, and when I think about this argument, there's a certain level of volunteerism that's assumed. Um, because by using this particular story, this violinist analogy, as a, a sort of paradigm for every relationship, including relationships between mother and child— there's, a, there's an implication that moral obligations, they have to be voluntarily accepted before they can be held to, ha to have any moral force. And so moral obligations to one's own offspring uh, will be merely voluntary. But I think when we're having conversations with people, Cam, people recognize um, that that's actually not the case. And they recognize that by a number of very simple questions. I mean, no one would say that uh, the, the, the laws and the 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 restrictions, as it were, and the warnings about smoking during pregnancy would be a bad thing. No one would say that, you know what, there's this don't drink if you're pregnant poster at the local pub or at my local restaurant. I, I need to really petition them to take it down because um, they're infringing upon my bodily autonomy. No one would say that. And that's because we recognize that smoking and drinking and doing some of these other things harms a child during pregnancy. And that's something that we don't want to do. And so people recognize that. And so one of the questions that I ask people is if, if we agree as a society and if you and I agree within this conversation that these particular actions shouldn't be allowed because they harm, they, they, they very directly harm the growing and developing young child, why should we allow actions that not only harm the child but take the very life of that child and tear them apart limb from limb? Mm -hmm. And and the last point that I'll make on this, um, actually two more points that I'll make on it. One with regards to, again, the sensibilities, one with regards to the logic. I think that for so many people, they are coming from a position of pain, right? They, they are looking at the world around them, maybe even their family around them and saying, nobody ever gave two cents about my well-being. I was neglected as a child. People, my, my parents didn't, didn't give two craps about me whatsoever. And therefore, that is the norm of the world. It is a cold, brutal world that I have experienced. And that is the cold, brutal world that I will pass on to the next generation. And that is tragic. Like that breaks my heart. I've been so blessed to have such a wonderful pair of parents, um, such wonderful siblings and extended family, that sort of thing. Um, that, that I, I mean, yeah, I, I could go on and on about how wonderful my parents were. They're not perfect, but they worked so hard to provide for us as kids. For those who haven't been blessed to have that experience, that is a legitimate pain. And that is something that, that dives so much deeper than the abortion conversation, right? That, that there is such a wounded culture out here that we have to recognize that we, we, we talked to Stephanie Gray Connors a, a couple of weeks ago. We need to inspire them to be the break in that chain. If, if they have lived in a family that has had generation after generation of neglect and, um, 
rejection and all sorts of emotionally traumatizing experiences for their children, we need to break that that habit. We need to break that chain, and we want to help that person be um, the the change, right? That um, in in the words of <laughs> Saint Mother Teresa of Calcutta, um, your opinions don't change the world; your actions do. And so we need people to act differently. And it's frustrating to have that weight put on our shoulders of, yeah, my parents were, were lazy, neglective, um, lots of, of um, adjectives that I could, I could throw in there, but um, not good parents. Why should I have to be the good parent that I never had sort of thing? I, I think of, um, I, I know that I'm, I'm rambling a lot. I, I think of the, the TV show, um, The Good Place. You and I, Peter, have, have talked about The Good Place before, and, and Eleanor Shellstrop from that show talks for a long time about how miserable her upbringing was and how um, she was basically challenged to, you have to be the, the change. You have to break that link. You can't simply pay forward for the rest of your life what you received. And so that, that's the appeal to the, the humanity that I would want to make to try to deepen the understanding of the person walking away. The logical thing that I would say is, is challenging this notion of absolute bodily autonomy, right? I, I asked a simple question, of what about me swinging my fist? Does my right to swing my fist end where your nose begins? Obviously, yes. I have the right to swing my fist until it starts negatively impacting those around me. My right to swing my fist absolutely ends when uh, where somebody else's nose begins. So that, that's how I would kind of wrap that one up. Yeah, that that's that's really good. That, and that analogy is good. I mean, I can swing my my fist all I want. Um, but as soon as I, I swing my fist and hit your nose, you know, I don't have the right to do that anymore. My bodily right to do that sort of thing ends. Now, there, there are a number of other ways we can approach this conversation on the streets, Cam. And one of the, the things that this argument assumes, this violinist analogy assumes, is that pregnancy is nine months in a hospital bed connected to uh, an, another person. Is there... Um, is this something you bring up as well that, you know, while there are circumstances where mothers are on bed rest and, and do have to spend a significant portion of their time in bed and, and laying still for the, the health of their child, um, that's certainly an exception to the rule. Is, is that something you bring up as well, just the the difference between the the, the reality of pregnancy and what the, the assumption that the argument makes? Absolutely. And, and like you said, obviously making um, concessions for the fact that there are very real life um, circumstances where a mother may be bedridden through one, two, or all three trimesters of her pregnancy, but dispelling the lie that our culture, that the media, that Hollywood has tried to convey that pregnancy is literally the worst. I, I think of, um, I, I know that I do a lot of pop culture references in here. Many of the, the movies that I reference, I would not actually recommend, but I think of, I think of that immortal line from Mean Girls of, if you have sex, you will get pregnant, and if you get pregnant, you will die. This notion that pregnancy is literally the worst thing in the entire universe. There are people that I have met, I, I'll never forget doing, doing one of our choice chain displays at Chinook Mall. I was talking to these two girls, they're probably like 16, maybe 17 years old. And they just had the most horrifying um, image of pregnancy in their mind of, oh my goodness, my body is going to fall apart and I'll never be able to pursue anything. And um, 
I, I will never be able to go out on a single date again. Nobody will love me. Nobody will um, even want to talk to me ever again because of this pregnancy. I won't be able to finish my school. I won't be able to do anything. I'll never have a free evening in my life ever again. And then I just, I, I had to work so hard not to laugh. And, and I just said to them, you know what? If that's what pregnancy was, I wouldn't blame somebody for for strongly contemplating abortion. I, I, obviously, abortion would still be wrong, even if even if pregnancy was that um, horrifyingly difficult all the time. But no, conveying to people the fact that for the vast majority of mothers out there, this is something that does not necessarily drastically change your life. Sure, your your um, your appetites are going to change. Your hormones are going to be in a huge flux. Um, you're going to have to buy some different clothing. But at the end of the day, my wife worked up until three weeks before my daughter was born. Um, she had sore feet by the end of the day, but by and large, she was able to navigate pregnancy very, very smoothly. She was a champion for doing so. I'm not saying that it's easy, but what I what I think we do need to appeal to is the reality of pregnancy isn't this crippling, destructive um, period of your life that is going to ruin your life forever. And conveying the fact that you can do, still do some pretty incredible things while you're pregnant. Uh, Peter, I, I think of, uh, of your lovely wife and and a, a very cool story. I don't know if you want to share it about um, a retreat a couple months ago that, that we were on a strategic planning retreat. But but it, it really impresses me if you want to share it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we at CCBR all got together at the end of the summer or, or beginning of September to have a strategic planning retreat just to, to talk about some content contingency plans and different plans for how we can continue with the work that we're doing. And we stayed at this this beautiful resort house thing on the side of a mountain. And on one of the, the afternoons slash evenings, a bunch of us went for a hike and we went up to the mountain and tried to see if we could make it to the peak. And we, we started with a group of, what, 10 to 12 people, I think, hiking up that mountain. And the, the group slowly got smaller and smaller as we got higher and higher. And, and it ended up being um, myself, my wife, and uh, one other guy, Craig Vimana, that we made it to the top. And my wife was 19 weeks pregnant at the point. At that point, um, that it wasn't an easy hike. I mean, there was shale at the top. We were scrambling. I was pretty worried because she was pregnant, and uh, I mean, if she fell, that I mean, that she would just keep on sliding. Um, but she made it to the top at 19 weeks pregnant. And I'm, I'm even thinking about this morning. Um, we are less than a week before her due date at this time of recording, and she dragged me out of bed to take some maternity pictures of her. Um, so we like drove away and went to this train track and she told me how to take the pictures and where she needed to stand and all of that. Um, still just getting out there and doing all the things that, um, yeah, all, all the things that she wants to do. And so there certainly is, you know, even if there might be this Hollywood stereotype that people have that pregnancy is the most awful thing, there, there are beautiful, beautiful aspects to pregnancy. Um, and I mean, my, my, my wife, my wife's case in point, she, she has less energy, perhaps. Um, perhaps carrying a baby is a little bit harder at nine months than not carrying a baby at all. And yet she can still do so many things. And I think it's important, again, just to just to mention one more time, Cam, the the effects that some people do experience during pregnancy, the the, you know, the bed rest, the having to, to stay in and be extra careful um, for the, the health of the baby for certain medical reasons. But like we said, those while those are difficult and while those are challenging, that's not the rule of pregnancy. And so, um, yeah, pregnancy is not uh, not lying beside a violinist for nine months, not being able to do anything. 
Yeah, and, and even those rules of pregnancy, again, I think that if we can combo this with the fact that we need to transform society in, in a greater way than just how we perceive abortion. We need to transform society into a society that is more supportive um, of everyone. And there are some rules, obviously, that go along with pregnancy. You mentioned a few of them already when it comes to smoking, when it comes to drinking, when it comes to um, other habits that we might have, when it comes to um, diet that, I mean, you're, you're probably not eating a ton of raw fish. You're probably not eating a ton of tuna. You're probably like, like there are hard and fast sacrifices that you absolutely have to make. And I have such a profound amount of respect for for pregnant mothers like having watched my wife go through pregnancy i have such a profound amount of respect and so it's not that we're not asking for sacrifices we are still absolutely asking for sacrifices and if we make pregnancy out to be um easy and and nothing in your life is going to change then we're lying to mothers and and we cannot we should not we we must not lie to mothers about what pregnancy is going to entail my goal in talking about this this skewed take on pregnancy is not to say pregnancy is actually super easy, but rather changing their paradigm, changing their understanding of pregnancy to help them understand that, yes, I'm being asked to make sacrifices, but not nearly the kind of sacrifices that are being portrayed by the media, that are being portrayed in this violinist analogy. I won't be on a gurney for the next nine months hooked up to um, a violinist. But I am going to have to make some sacrifices and yet tempering the sacrifices that are going to be made and then build supplementing that with a conversation about we all need to be make making more sacrifices for those around us for a a good society, a society that is thriving um, is the message that I'm trying to convey. So as activists, Cam, who use victim photography, abortion victim photography, when we are engaging with the public uh, about abortion, it's inevitable that we have to factor in the difference between the act of abortion and the act of just separating the violinist. And we talked about it briefly before, but how would you bring this up in a conversation with someone um, highlighting the difference between, you know, uh, you know, un unhooking from the kidney of a violinist and the, the difference between that and unhooking, as it were, from a, a preborn child. So like we mentioned before, the the end argument, as it were, is is what is killing each victim. But I think that it is relevant to talk about the abortion procedures, like you mentioned, to, to have that image of abortion victim photography. Often um, people will say something to the effect of, if we wanted to make this truly analogous, we're not um, aesthetically gradually um, detaching the the violinist and they're beautifully passing away into the next life sort of thing. But we are, we are savagely ripping them apart piece by piece um, in arguably one of the most violent procedures that, that you can imagine happening to a human being. Um, yes. At the end of the day, aesthetics don't make abortion wrong. If, if abortion was a very, very sterile, very aesthetically pleasing somehow procedure, it would still be absolutely wrong to directly and intentionally kill the child. But again, we, we appeal to the wholeness of the person and help them realize just how barbaric of an action abortion truly is and help them realize that this isn't something that that the media has been conveying to them this this procedure that they don't have to worry about oh it, it's nothing it's just flushing your uterus or removing pregnancy contents or something like this it's not this procedure that um is 
not worth thinking about for more than five minutes. Oh, sure, th this is no different than getting a haircut or, or my nails trimmed or something like this. This is a very, very, not only invasive and violent procedure towards the mother, but obviously even more so, and the the root of the, the human rights violation is how barbaric and and fatal, obviously, at the end of the day, it is for that preborn child, right? And so conveying that to them as well, this isn't simply a, oh, we gently unplug the violinist, and then we walk away and all things are happy. No, this is a very, very, very terrible procedure, first and foremost, obviously, for the preborn child, but worth mentioning as well for the mother, not only the the physical pain that can go forward, but the emotional, psychological, spiritual pain that goes forward, making this a very real, helping them understand the the holistic decision procedure entirety of the argument can really help them understand um, just how terrible the analogy of the violinist is and just how inappropriate of an action abortion ever is. And that's one of the reasons, Cam, that I, I that I support the use of abortion victim photography, of the images uh, that that highlight and that show the reality of abortion. It, they they show the humanity of the preborn children, but they I mean they they show beautiful children torn apart, and it's because the images. I mean we we've we've used this phrase before. A a, a picture speaks a thousand words. Um, the images cuts through the rhetoric, it cuts through the bad arguments, and it brings people face to face with the action that they are seeking to support. And one of the questions that I have, and it doesn't have to do uh, exactly with this argument, but one of the questions that I have for people who don't like the images but support abortion is, you know, why should it? Don't you think that if you support abortion, you would support what the images, what the what abortion looks like? And if you don't support what abortion looks like, you think it's grotesque and you think it's there's this dead baby on the picture. Then how could you support abortion as well? Because there's this there's this dichotomy there that many people don't realize. But what you said, Cam, you, you mentioned it multiple times now, is that the the real important thing is the the cause of death. Um, the, the natural versus the unnatural causes of death that we that we see when we analyze the two arguments here, the violinist analogy and the, the reality of what abortion does. How would you how would you so we've talked about some of the, these other ways that we can bring up these other points in conversation. How would you bring this specific point up in a conversation with someone you're having on the streets? Yeah, uh, as much as we we. Um absolutely want to build in this emotional capital and, and engage the, the whole person in their sensibilities and humanity, we have to come back to this, this conclusive and game-ending, not game-changing, game-ending point on the violinist analogy that what is the biological cause of death? What is the biological cause of death and where does it come from? What is the acting force? For the violinist, the biological cause of death is kidney failure and it is an internal force within that violinist that is um, responsible for their death. Absolutely different when it comes to um, a preborn child and pregnancy. It is an external force. And so sometimes I'll make the analogy of, I mean, we, we talk about a rowboat analogy. We use this rowboat analogy in a, a wide variety of different circumstances. But I, I talk about the idea of 
Peter, you and I could could be out in a rowboat. I don't know why we would pick a rowboat when we have canoes at our disposal because canoes are like four trillion times better than rowboats, in my humble opinion. Um, but th- there's a case in which I could fall out of the boat and Peter, you wouldn't be able to save me and I would tragically drown. And that would be a tragedy. And there would be nothing that you could do to save me. And the reason I died is because of something that happened to me myself. Or you could push me out of the boat and hold my head under the water until the bubbles stop coming up. And there's an external actor. In in one case, there isn't an external actor. It is, um, I mean, it, obviously the, the analogy breaks down in some ways because for for the kidney problem like like that is literally inside of their body their their body is killing them from the inside out that's how we can think about it whereas somebody is killing the preborn child from the outside in where is the killing force coming from that's the point that i would want to convey to them as the be all end all game ending point as to why this argument does not um does not win at the end of the day does that make sense yeah that does and and i think Two really, really, really simple questions that we can use when we're talking to people is, okay, so if we disconnect from the violinist, why does the violinist die? Right? Get to them thinking. They die because they're their medical condition. If you, quote unquote, disconnect from the preborn child, why does that preborn child die? And and the difference is 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 huge. I mean, because they were torn apart um and, and beheaded and all of that. And so there's this this external force that comes in and ends the life of the preborn child where there's this natural medical condition that ends the life of the violinist. Yeah. And, and I will build on that though, Peter, because I, I have had people say to me, uh, for, for a late term abortion, for example, why does this child die? Oh, it's because their brain was insufficiently developed or, or because their, their brain wasn't capable of, of prolonging their life. Therefore, it's an internal force. There's an insufficiency of their brain or I've, I've even had somebody say like, oh, well, it's because their kidneys aren't actually filtering their blood and so they can't handle um, living in the outside world. It's still their kidneys that are killing them. No, no, th- this is a natural state of their kidneys at that point versus an unnatural state at a different point. Right. So yes, the, there are people who are going to try to talk their way around it. I, I love those two questions. And so please do um, use them and do know them, but have that in your back pocket to be able to differentiate between where is the killing force coming from? Is it coming from inside the person or is it coming from outside the person? And if it's coming from outside the person, then we cannot in any circumstance allow that for the direct and intentional killing of an innocent human. All right, everyone, that is the violinist analogy. And those are some of our thoughts on how we respond to that analogy and that pro-abortion argument when we hear it. One of the things we want to encourage you and, and Cam, you can you can bounce on this and, and add to it as well. We want to encourage you to have conversations. But if, if this comes up in a conversation and you use some of the arguments that we've used, let us know how they work. Let us know how it worked for you in conversation. Let us know if there were some other challenges that came up that we failed to mention during this conversation or some other arguments that the person trying to justify abortion brought up that you weren't quite sure how to respond to. And we will most definitely respond to that because that is what we want to do on this podcast. Cam, you do have an action point at the end of every episode or most episodes. Hit us up. 
Absolutely. Like you said, have those conversations. The goal of this podcast is to give you the tools that you need to change minds and save lives. And the only way that you can do that is through your engagement or or the primary way. I won't say the only way that you can do that, but the primary way that we're trying to empower you and encourage you to achieve that goal of transforming our culture uh, one person at a time is through having that conversation. So please, please, please do have those conversations. Let us know how they go. And again, like we talked about with Scott the other week, realize that you haven't failed if you don't change their mind completely within the span of that conversation. You are putting pebbles in their shoe. Sometimes those pebbles are really tiny tiny, and they're going to take a long time for them to take out and um, analyze and end up shifting their opinion. Sometimes they are going to grow into boulders that they cannot avoid any longer. And that might take a matter of hours or days or months or years. Who knows? It is in the Lord's hands. But have those conversations with confidence, with courage, and with compassion. So together, um, yeah, we can we can change minds, save lives, and transform our culture. That's our goal, the pro-life guys. That's our goal at CCBR, and that, I hope, will be your goal as well. Yeah, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have victims. This is a bad idea that most certainly does have victims, and so our responsibility is to counter those bad ideas with good ones that are true and, and right and intellectually sound. Uh, and ideas, in this case, that highlight the humanity of preborn children. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast catcher. If you're listening to this on, from our website, that's awesome. Um, thank you for doing that. You can also find us on your podcast catcher. Um, do follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever you do your social media doings uh, and spend time on social media. And don't forget to catch up on our Humans of the Pro-Life Movement. Um, We have at least three Humans of the Pro-Life Movement episodes out on YouTube right now. The videos are there, so go check them out. We want to highlight some of the phenomenal work that some unsung heroes, some unsung activists are doing day in and day out or or, uh, on a volunteer basis whenever they get the chance to defend and protect preborn children. And we would love for you to join them. And and we would love for you to get experience in the streets and then you too can join Humans of the Pro-Life Movement to share some of the experiences that you have. We also have another episode coming soon called The Pulse, as I mentioned earlier. It is uh, it's a a news episode. It's a news uh, series where we want to share pro-life news from around the world, the good, the bad, and everything else, and provide some commentary on it. We want to, as pro-lifers, tell our own story. And so this is our opportunity to do that and to take the storytelling of pro-life news away from pro-abortion media. And finally, if you want to financially partner with us, we would absolutely love that. And you would help keep this program continuing uh, on its on its road, continuing on. Uh, you'd help us to continue the work that we're doing to, to equip people to change minds and save lives, to give them the apologetic tools and methods and questions and everything else that we use when we are in conversations with others about abortion. So thank you so much. Get out there, have conversations, let us know how they go, and we hope you tune in again next week.